And now for something completely machinima. This is the And Now for Something Completely Machinima podcast, and I'm one of your regular hosts, Tracy Harwood. Uh, today we are speaking with Sarah Higley, otherwise known as Hypasia Pickens of Textcavation. Now, Sarah is a machinimator with some history and was particularly active between 2010 and 2014. Uh, she's Professor of English at the University of Rochester in New York in her day job and has published on machinima aesthetics and its creative possibilities in the past. Uh, but more than that, she's used machinima to explore literary texts, some of which date back to the 10th century. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be invited, Tracy. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a real pleasure to um, to talk to you about this subject, actually. Now, the theme of this month's um, podcast is actually uh, to do with classic, lit literary classics and how machinima has been used to adapt those classics. Um, so let's, um, you know, I know this is an area that you've worked in. Well, this is your work. Um, so let's start with you telling us a little bit about your background as a machinima filmmaker and the classic works or the, the period that you've specialized in? Well, okay, I have made machinima of all sorts, not just uh, um, um, machinima that's based on, on Old English and Middle English poetry, but I've done fantasies, I've done comedies, very few comedies, most of my stuff is pretty dark. Um, I've taken poems, for instance, and recited them to a background of imagery and music. And I was wondering if that that also uh, um, qualifies as classic. Yes. Yeah, um, I think so. For instance, Stolen Child by William Butler Yeats um, and um, Robert Frost's design. I, I, I'm very fond of, of certain poems that uh, um, I've found Second Life um, adapts to very well. Um, and I liked this genre because it combined four passions of mine, um, painting, narrative, music, and film. So um, I wasn't sure at first what you meant by classic, uh, but uh, I think what you mean then is something like adapting uh, well-known poetry mm. uh, to and, and making it visual. Uh, which is in itself a, a, a little problematic too. Um, but my specialty is as a medievalist. Um, I teach Old English, Middle English. I teach Middle Welsh. Um, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, Celtic literature and translation, medieval Celtic literature and translation. I also teach creative writing. And I also taught machinima. So when they discovered that I was doing this, or when I let them know that I was doing this, they allowed me uh, to, uh, to, teach, to teach machinima. So um, literary machinima, stories based on poetry. Um, so uh, I've done about four films that specifically target uh, medieval texts. Yes, um, I've, I've seen some of them. They're incredible oh, works. Oh, thank you. I mean, my very first one um, when I was learning to make machinima was Odd Hildegard of Bingen, who uh, was a 12th century German nun. And she was a builder of two convents. Uh, she was quite temperamental and, um, and independent. Um, and it's called K-A-P-H-D, all right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's an, it's an apocryphal story about this woman's prophetic power. Um, Hildegard of Bingen was known for her visions. She's German, let's put it this way. She was a German nun yeah. for her, um, for her, um, her range of, of talents, um, her erudition, her musical compositions. That's what most people probably uh, associate with her. Um, there have been a number of recordings of, of her antiphons and her um, symphoniae. Uh, her traveling, um, her writing, her letters to popes and kings, her visions that she put in um, several books. She wrote nine books. Her healing. Uh, she kept um, she kept a sort of an apothecary garden, um, and also for her inventing a language. And I wrote a book on that. Um, her lingua ignota, her unknown language, is one that records ten hundred and twelve words. And thankfully, it is translated. There's a list. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. we would we would have nothing but these uh, words like arts and folians and <laughs> things of that sort. Um, so it's translated into um, uh, it describes old high middle middle high German and Latin. So I was able to um, uh, make an edition of that and to talk about it in my latest book. And when um, was that published? Is that fairly recent? Oh my God, long. No, oh, okay, <laughs> long time okay. ago. I'm, I'm working on something else now. I'm, I'm working on um, uh, concepts of the fairy and especially the French, the 14th French, um, 14th century French fairy tale Melusine. Um, so that's been my focus lately. And I'm doing another edition, but it's enormously long and it's taking me a while. <laughs> It's tedious work, but it's rather exciting, too, because of the things that you uncover. And that was the same for, for Hildegard of Bingen when I was doing the, uh, um, the addition of her, of her language, the discovery of the, the different words for things like stylus or um, frying pan were rather interesting. Um, and all those herbs, that was difficult. Yes. Um, so I... K-A-P-H-D is an apocryphal story, as I said, uh, written by her biographers in her Vita. Um, and in it, Hildegard of Bingen counsels a sinful priest who has, when he has chastised his, uh, his, his novice for not putting the candles out, um, he finds these letters, K-A-P-H-D, written by no human hand on the altar cloth, and he's frightened by it, and he knows that only one person can tell him what these mean. Because mm -hmm. she, because of her visions, she became known as a kind of prophet. And so he takes these to her, and she tells him what they mean. Um, they essentially... Um, uh, yeah. They're written in Latin, and I don't want to go into it, essentially, and it's kind of an uh, acrostic anyway. Um, um, you can watch the film and see it. Well, I, I did actually watch the film earlier, and I'm, I'm, I was kind of really impressed with that. And that was, that was what, 2009, did you say that was recorded? No, it was 2010, 11. Yeah. So um, I noticed in it what you were what you did was um, you tried to use a little bit of lip sync in it um, for part of the storytelling, which I thought was really 
Mother, I have never ever mocked our Lord. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what I was going to say was, um, how did you come to use Second Life for the for the work that you produced in in these um, old, you know, old English formats? How how did you come to use Second Life for this? Oh, it's kind of by accident. I was a member of a writers group in Rochester. And uh, we would meet monthly and, and talk about science fiction or, or um, media. Uh-huh. And I was showed by a colleague how she was representing her library. She's a librarian by building a mock-up of it in this virtual sandbox called Second Life. And I'd never heard of it. I was very intrigued. Um, and there was also a conference going on there sponsored by NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to... Um, to get to it. So I made an avatar very quickly, Hypatia Pickens, and um, I attended, I managed to get in at the very tail end of it. I didn't actually see it, um, but I got intrigued. I, I stayed in there by other creative possibilities. I did an exploration of it. And ever since I was a child, I wanted to have a doll town, you know, a miniature that was explorable and endless and so this brought all of that back and uh the creative possibilities uh way outweighed the sort of um social aspects of second life and Mm -hmm. i realized that second life had this reputation for being a hangout for um for trysts and adultery and, and all that sort of thing and it's so much more than that. I went to a poetry workshop. I'm still part of it, the Blue Angel um, Poetry. Um, uh-huh. uh, so you still use second Poetry life, dive. Yes. Well, occasionally. I mean, it's time-consuming. It's um, very addictive. Uh, it's worse than Facebook, if you get into it. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of abandoned it and machinima because I need to move. Um, my work already entails so much sitting in front of a computer. Uh, but when you go back into it, you see your friends, you, you can go to the poetry workshops, you can go to the 3D artwork and environment creation um, yeah. uh, workshops. Uh, and of course, there are incredible environments there. Um so what I did at first was I made a digital representation of our Robbins Library at the University of Rochester, and I, I got a small grant to maintain it, which was later taken away from me. Uh-huh. Um, but in editions produced by the Middle English Text Series, you can just, you know, press the books, and a link will come up and take you right to the page, and you can read these uh, Middle English uh, um, um, works. And then wow. in about 2009, I heard about machinima, um, mm-hmm. mainly through my involvement in the art. Um, I, I discovered the 3D art and machinima challenges that were sponsored by the University of Western Australia and run by J.J. Zafanwi or J.J. Zagadza. Yeah, yeah. Zagadza. I know. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to pronounce his name. Yeah. Um, J.J., who has been so enterprising about this. And it... it, it um, it answered all my deep desires to pull together, as I said, the visual, the auditory, the verbal, um, yeah, and combine it with narrative. It, it, 
all my own pursuits as a child had been painting, poetry, music, and story, and, and movement. I, I used to be in ballet. And so I went to workshops with Chantal Harvey, and um, I joined this uh, Second Life Machinima group um, and got to know Cisco Vanderveer, who gave me a lot of advice, and so did Natasha Rant and, and other people who were there. Um, and for a four-year period, I made machinima of all types, fantasy comedies, whimsical pieces, poems. And it culminated, and I think this probably is what burnt me out completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, a six-month project um, in which I made a half-hour film for the international, the international uh, congress of the John Gower Society, uh, held June 2014 at Rochester, mm -hmm. um, and. That's something I can talk about at great length because there's a lot to say. And um, it's probably the first and probably the only time a film of mine will, will be shown on a big screen before a live audience. And I can't tell you how thrilling that was because most of the time your machinima goes up on Vimeo or uh, YouTube and you get likes and comments and you know, yeah. maybe 12 people see it. Yeah. So, and this is, so we're talking here about the lover's confession tales. Yes. 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 Well, yeah. I've, I, you know, obviously I've had a little look at some of the work that you've produced and I, I can't tell you how impressed I am with this. This is, this is, this is an absolutely stunning piece of work. Um, but I, what I was intrigued about with it was, you know, I saw you discuss the use of visual as an, an interpretive tool for those tales. And, you know, when, what struck me was when I was watching it, it's the narration, um, which is obviously key to accepting this as, a, as a, an adapted work. Uh, and you narrate it in Old English. I, in Middle English. Middle yes. English, is it? Yes. Middle English. So it's so so it's also obviously an important oral cue as well as a visual cue, which is being you know which you're connecting here to the the second life um, visual. So you're connecting the visuals and the story through through this um, through this uh, process of narration. Um, but but why use a long dead language to retell a story in machinima? What what was your thought process there? You mean why did I narrate it in the Middle English as opposed yeah, to just yeah. narrating it in, in modern yeah. English? Yeah. Well, I am a teacher of language and I'm fascinated by foreign language and especially dead language. Well, sorry, um, is that the right word to use for it? But. Well, we don't speak Middle English anymore. We have remnants of it. Mm -hmm. Um in the way that we have remnants of old English as well. Yeah. Uh, but I love the sound of it. Mm. Um, uh, for instance, uh, if I can go back to another medieval text that I did before I talk about the Lover's Confession, I also narrated um, Wolf and Ed Watcher, which yes. is a 10th century old English um, yes. poem. It's completely enigmatic. We don't know who Wolf is. We don't know who Ed Watcher is. We do know that it's one of two extant um, Old English poems written in the point of view, from the point of view of a woman. Mm. 
and uh, she has separated from Wolf, whoever he is. And it's only like 17 lines long. And yet uh, next to Beowulf, it is the most critiqued uh, a poem. Right. I and see. I needed to narrate it in Old English. Uh, um, it's as though people gave my, it's, the, it's as though someone gave my people sport is what that means. Uh -huh. But then lach, lach is, um, it could be translated as sport, sacrifice, game, play. Uh, we don't know what it means. There are about five words in that that can change the the, the meaning context, point yeah. completely yeah. and so i said at the end of that film that there is no uh agreed upon interpretation of it no one can agree upon an interpretation of it and neither can this film so so setting something like that to a visual um context or putting it in 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 visual term, making a movie of it, let's put it that way. Uh, limits you explore you it. one limits you to one interpretation. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make it as ambiguous as the poem is if you put images to it. Yes. Now the lover's confession did not uh, uh um did not exhibit or did not um offer quite the same problem. Right. right. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty straightforward. The stories are pretty straightforward, uh, but it's it's medieval, and uh, the the messages in it are moralistic. Um, uh, John Gower is eclipsed by Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, everyone reads Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, mm -hmm. um, Troilus and Crusade. Uh, he's just so much flashier than John Gower, um, who is his contemporary in, in London, the 14th century. And so um, it's very unlikely that anybody would read John Gower, even though there are translations, mm, not in the same way that there are translations of Geoffrey Chaucer. And I still believe to answer your question, that one should read Chaucer in the original and not in a translation. And so that's how I teach Chaucer. Um, well, I, you know, I remember as a, as, a, as a teenager that we were played um, old, um, old discs of it, somebody reading from it in Old English. And that's how I, that is how I remember Chaucer. Well, the thing is, is that in the United States, we're a linguistic island. Yeah. <laughs> um, Spanish is our second language, but we are, um, um, our, our neighbor, Canada, speaks English and French, but, you know, it's, it's English. It's not like being in Europe where people just yeah. naturally pick up uh, two or three languages, especially the Dutch. They're so good. Yes. Um, Chantal, you're referring to here, of course. Right. So this is why I narrated it in in Middle English was to give you the sound mm. of what it might have been like. We mm. we don't have recordings from those days, so we don't know how how words were actually pronounced. Mm. We can only surmise it from from linguists who study it. And um, I think one of the drawbacks is that I had to have subtitles. Yes, and those can be distracting, but I'll tell you about the visuals. Um, 
I was dead set against um, putting these characters in any kind of neo-medieval setting um, or period dress. Uh, for one thing, you can't get clothing in Second Life that replicates 14th century London dress, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. all Disneyfied with the long hair and, uh, yeah, yeah. and the gowns and none of it realistically medieval. I had no interest in putting castles in there or, or anything like that. Um, that would have destroyed the stories. It would have been corny and distracting. So all of these tales are put in modern dress so that the messages of the tale would be more immediate and more up-to-date instead of being dismissed as medieval and moralistic and on the deadly, you know, the seven deadly sins and, and, and that sort of thing. So um, so there are three of them that I took. I mean, he he's, was a very, very prolific writer. Uh, um, the Confessio Amantes, or The Lover's Confession, is in itself three books. Mm. Um, and, and in it, uh, uh, there is a dreamer and lover um, who represents a kind of every man that the, the uh, um, lover's confession is a what we call a mirror for princes, um, a set of morals that are meant to guide a prince as a Christian and as a ruler um, to conduct his life morally. And it's allegorized as this lover of an unknown beloved and his psychopomp and instructor in the dream is called genius. And uh, the lover is judged by the goddess of love for not loving properly. And of course, love has all these different connotations to it. So, so I chose three stories, um, one of them being uh, The Travelers and the Angel, uh, Canas and Macher, and then Florent, which is the only one I didn't narrate. I, um, I had subtitles for that only. And that's sort of set in a kind of surreal mafia world. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so um, The Travelers and the Angel. Um, one of the wonderful things about Second Life is that you have all these people who are making these different bizarre environments. Um, and so I set it in the wastelands which is sort of a post-apocalyptic world to, to represent the moral uh, emptiness of um, the man who is covetous and the man who is envious. Mm -hmm. And of course, these words envy, for instance, meant to look with malice upon someone whose work or his uh, possessions or um, you, you want, but you don't have. And so you wish him ill and, um, and, it's one of these three wishes kind of thing. Uh, God sends down an angel to try to figure out why it is that the humans that he's, he's made are, are, are so yeah. dreadful. <laughs> and, so, and so the angel plays a trick on them. Um, and the, so and this was you... all told, this was all told basically in uh, uh, travelers were driving in a car and they pick up a hitchhiker and they go to a bar and the angel reveals himself as an angel and gives him these, 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 uh, this challenge, essentially, you can ask for whatever you want, anything you want, but the proviso being that the second person gets twice as much. And so the envious person says, uh, 
well, whatever I ask, he's going to get more. And I can't stand that. So he says, make me blind in one eye. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, the covetous one, he goes second. He says, you go first because he knows he'll get more. And so he's blinded in both eyes. And the angel shakes his head and goes away and says, the world impedeth. Okay, the world declines. Um, It's not far from the truth, is it really? (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, this is why the thing is, is you put it in modern dress and suddenly it becomes relevant. Absolutely. Very relevant. And you're still using this today in your teaching, is that right? Uh, um, I haven't taught much cinema. Oh, you mean, do you mean? No, I meant in terms of Gower and... um, Oh, you have to make it relevant. Absolutely. Um, the last class I taught that was, um, I taught Chaucer um, uh-huh. about a year and a half ago. Um, and Chaucer is always relevant. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I'm interested now in the work, workflow that you, that you have for, for the machinima. Did you go out and you know, you you did the adaptations here. So did you go and find the sets in Second Life or had you, um, you know, had had you got a space and you created the sets um, with, with you know, other creators and what have you? How, how did you go about doing it? Oh, well, there are so many different ways that you can do it. I would say a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Um, Florent, for instance, which um, is the one of the loathly, the three, um, the three really interesting loathly lady tales that we have from the 14th and 15th century about a man who is forced to marry an ugly woman. Um, And I set that in an environment I had made. What you can do with your environments is you can texture the ground. So I textured it with the manuscript um, texture that I had. Mm -hmm. And so all these people who are dressed like in modern days, dress, riding motorcycles, are doing it on this textured land. Mm -hmm. So um, I bought the sim, or I rented the sim, and I textured the land, and um, I got a Game of Thrones uh, throne. You can buy that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Set that on there. I dressed everybody. Um, you can get your friends essentially to help play uh, different parts. And um, that's the beauty of Second Life is that it not only is 99% of it built by its residents, as they call it, but it's um, multiplayer. So you can go around with your friends and and visit these different things and and you can can pay them to uh, act in your... uh, yeah. So, yeah. but the thing is, is that too, excuse me, you can find um, the most amazing environments, for instance, for not just the wastelands, uh, a lot of the of um, Travelers and the Angel was put in Cherry Manga's magnificent build called Insanity, quite frightening, uh-huh. uh, with this yellow landscape uh, that's sprouting these heads and is covered with eyes and that helped again with not only the spiritual dereliction of these characters but the insanity of asking to, <laughs> to be blinded in one eye so that your yeah. your fellow traveler would be completely blind i mean the the sort of insanity of sin yeah 
okay. the insanity of moral depravity. And uh, there's just been a number of sins that I love, sims. <laughs> It's very close to sins. The so sins that I've loved. There have been wonderful environments. They're called sims, simulations. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of them, the Petrovsky flux. Oh, yes. Been, um, oh, it's absolutely stunning. And that that was the forest that uh, Florence walks through to meet the loathly lady, the, the ugly lady. I see. And um, it's essentially... A mathematical equation that I don't understand set in motion uh, uh -huh. with all these tunnels and chambers that and then they all fall apart and um, one of them just accidentally knocks the avatar straight out and um, that was I put that in uh -huh. uh, as an example it was he was screwed <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because he couldn't find the answer to what it is that all women want, which is a feature in all three loathly ladies that we have. So, um, so the Petrovsky flux and uh, Scottius Polk's The Docks, for instance. Scottius Polk is a, a friend of mine. I've met him outside of Second Life. Um, Scott Rolfe, he's now making his own artwork, uh, 3D, real time. Yeah. Um, and you just make a story about it about these, uh, these astonishing sims. One yeah. of the most important ones was uh, Claudia 333 Jewel's um, spirit, which was the fairy world. And I put Stolen Child in that by William Butler Yeats. Yes, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask you about that one as well. All right, I'm sorry. But, I'm no, no, it's, it's okay. Along here. No, that's fine. I, what I was, I was gonna say is, did you find the sim first or? The poem first. That was, uh, I suppose you were familiar with the poem and then you just found the location where you thought it could play out. It's hard to say. I really <laughs> don't know. Um, a lot of these are challenges. I mean, I wrote a number of these things for the UWH challenge, uh, which asked you to find especially the artwork that they uh, set up at right. the, the UWA. So you would go around and you would take pictures. Um, Art of the Artist would be the theme. Um, and that was set for a, a couple of my mm -hmm. uh, films. Uh, yeah, which was about um, a man with aphasia. And um, Cloud, which was about a woman suffering Alzheimer's. And yeah, uh, I seem to be focused on brain diseases um, and speaking. <laughs> oh, well, let's hope that's not apocryphal in any way. No, I mean, it's, it's always a worry uh, if you're a sure. writer, so. Well, I mean, the thing but that's... For yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, the thing that's really impressed me with, with um, the narrated work is, the, you know, the voice work that you do. Are you, are you a trained actor as well? I mean, you know, obviously... Literature is your your thing. It's your field. It's your expertise. But how did you train and prepare yourself to narrate these works? I was in theater since I was thirteen. Okay. Um, I really got into it in high school and in my first two years of college. And part 
of it is my love of language and accents and, and different words, um, you know, quite different words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I went into the study of the Middle Ages because I was fascinated by uh, what felt to me almost like fantasy languages. Uh, Tolkien helped <laughs> when I was 14 yeah. as, as a as a medievalist and a language inventor and so I was I was on stage quite a bit um I'm a ham uh, <laughs> I practice these languages a lot I have I wouldn't say that I've worked in radio but I have read um for at the University of Rochester's um oh WXXI I've read some stories. Um, so sure. you will practice then. Hire it? me as a reader, please. I, I need a second career. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, no, I'm just intrigued to, to hear you say how you developed the uh, the voice acting side of it, which is you know really a big part of of, of the work that you've done. I think from, certainly from the the, um, the the part of the catalog that I've been looking at. Now, you've also, um, I don't know if you still have it, given that you've been out of Second Life um, professionally for a while as such, um, but you also mentioned that you've got a, a studio in Second Life. What was the role of the studio for you? How did it help you to develop your work? I never had a studio in Second Life. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Oh, I thought you had a place where you showed some of your work, a place where you had it um, uh, streaming. I read that somewhere. I can't remember where I read it now, but. No, you don't um, have a place. Well, it's here and there. When I, I, I had a, I've had, I have art galleries in okay. Second Life because I am an artist, um, and I contributed quite a bit to UWA with with subpar artwork that three <laughs> D artwork that I made. Um, I made a salamander. Um, uh, so it's not curated anywhere, basically. Is that what you, that's? No, it's well. I mean, some of my artwork is curated. Um, at the galleries uh, by Ernie Farstrider. Um, but but they're imported textures. Um, okay. Some of them are builds. But, but I do have a sim that I and my students built in the latest machinima class that I, it was actually a Second Life class. We took a poem from um, the Welsh poet or set of poets, uh, collectively called Taliesin, called Praidianun, or the spoils or the cattle of Anun, Anun being um, a kind of subterranean otherworld uh, um, in Celtic mythology and Welsh mythology. Mm-hmm. And we turned it into this enormous sim where you walk around and you read the different stanzas of the poem and have it, as I said before, kind of visualized. So my students would take a stanza and they would buy sculptures and things and set them up around it. And, and you enter it by, uh, by walking across the water, following the white dogs with the red eyes, and you, get, and you sink into an under, underwater sim. And you go into this one place, and I do have the, um, a link to the machinima I made for that called Prythianun. We also made a soundbite for it um, with the studio in uh, real life. 
uh, where one of my students narrates it. And um, here and there, I've put on, on the walls of my gallery uh, uh, links. I've made a ton of, of posters. <laughs> 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 for my various uh, for my various machinima, uh -huh. um, but I don't have a real studio exactly. I, I, things here and there. Okay, okay. Um, I, I lost an entire sim just by not paying my tier on time. Oh no, that must have been very frustrating. Oh, this was like three years in the making, and um, oh, it was absolutely gorgeous, and it was. Oh, I bet that was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was. And so I have to be very careful not to lose Prithianun because a lot of the materials there might belong to students who no longer are on Second Life if I, um, if they, they can't be returned to me. Yeah. They just go back to their accounts that they're not using. So they disappear. Yeah, that's very difficult. I mean, machinima so, is, I suppose, one of the only ways that you can record what's happened in Second Life. Well, that's life. what I've done. That's what yeah. I've done is I've recorded their, uh, their work. Mm, in mm. that and so you are still making machinima but using it more as a documentary approach now just no to... i'm not making machinima i haven't made machinima since 2016 okay um as i said um the lover's confession almost killed me uh one thing i had a hard deadline it had to be shown on june 12th or whatever it was at the yeah. conference and I was also teaching full-time so I was doing this till four in the morning and teaching yeah. and putting this all together and then making sure that they got the the film that it was mastered so that they could it could show it um, and we went through several trials and and then the next six months was devoted to my writing an article that was published in a Kessis uh, which is an online um, medieval journal mm -hmm. about the process of making um, a visualization of these three stories by John Gower. Mm -hmm. And also about, you know, I, I've, I've, what I do to valorize my, <laughs> my work in, in Second Life is to um, turn it to academic study. Yeah, practice-based so, research, yeah. we call it. Yes, practice-based research, which, you know, start out as hobbies and then become these passions. And I, I, I love talking academically, scholastically about these things. Mm -hmm. So I have an article in Understanding Machinima by uh, Jenna Ng called Dangerous Sim Crossings. You know, you cross a, 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 you know, where sims come together, you sometimes fall through the cracks. Yeah. And it's all about the frame and about um, and about using these environments. And I, I, I co-wrote an article with JJ Jagadiva Jagadisan Jagadiva Jagadiva. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, JJ. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> please forgive me, JJ. Um, you would have such a hard name <laughs> to pronounce. Um, and what was and, that about? That was. Focusing on the on Second Life as a as a it was platform. it was focusing on the University of Western Australia's work and oh, we went okay. to Barcelona basically together and gave a talk on it. Wow! At um at one of the universities there, uh, that was lovely. Um, and uh, I have and then the Acasis article. So uh, I would say that the the one in Understanding Machinima essays on filmmaking in virtual worlds and. And my article in Akasis are probably the ones that are most uh, um, available to. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we can put a link in the show notes to that. Well, I was going to actually just ask you something about the article actually in um, in Jenna's book. Um, All right. Where you, if you can recall this, I don't know if you can, but uh, I but I, but I actually I've just written a book about machinima as well, and I also go back oh. to Peter Greenaway's comments oh, um, yes. that that you've cited uh, in that in there as well, and elsewhere that I, I've kind of seen, you know. What I took from from Peter's comments, I I think we probably take the same sort of points really. But he seemed to me to be talking about, um, you know, machinima is an opportunity not just to to use text based interpretations of 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 media, if you like, um, but to use the image to drive the storytelling process and I just wondered how you you know how you interpreted those kinds of comments and what that meant for the development of your own work thank you thank you for asking that because uh, Ricky Grove asked me to do a half hour documentary on finding the experimental in machinima Mm -hmm. and um and so I did as well as in um Jenna Ng's book, I did comment on Peter Greenaway's remarks, uh, which was why replicate a sort of standard filmmaking processes you find in the ordinary film mm-hmm. in machinima when machinima itself, and when virtual worlds themselves, you can you can defy gravity. You can you can do so many different things that you can't do in reality. So why why make it a kind of why give it a chronology? Yeah. Uh, he basically says get rid of the camera. Um, he does. Yeah. Yes. He says get rid of the frame size. You know, get rid of the frame. Uh, get rid of the characters and get rid of dialogue. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people were sort of angered by this. Um, and I think they misunderstood it, really. I think they misunderstood where he was going with it. I think that what he is emphasizing is make make something that's more abstract, because mm. there's something called abstract film. Mm. Um, if you want to get rid of experimental film, because um, uh, after after you have done this kind of thing for decades, it's no longer experimental, sure. you yeah. know, um, and it's no longer avant-garde. Um, because it's not at the forefront of, um, of it's become a style that's recognized. Um, uh, this sort of non-narrative, this evocative montage of images, um, this, these statements essentially about um, the media and, and how it uh, dislocates us and uh, deterritorializes things. Mm. Um, for instance, Lainey Boom's push. Yeah, was, remember it well. <laughs> yes, was was quite startling to people, and people started imitating that. Um, I have a number of films that I really admire that do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, one of the first I saw was um, along that along that line. Really, was um, Tom Jantel's Cirque du Cinema. Um, oh, I love Tom Gentle. Uh, uh, I love Dear Fairy. Yes, go yes, ahead. Yes, <laughs> Dear I was going to say Dear Fairy was a, as a, was a later one, but I remember Cirque uh, coming out. Cirque was submitted to, so I ran the first Machinima Film Festival in Europe. 
um, and uh, that that's uh, that was the film. I mean, we only I can remember discussing what the categories were that we we um, offer. An experimental was one of those categories that we sort of threw in at the last minute because we didn't really know what to call some of the work that was presented, including work by Tom's. And Precisely. yeah, Tom Tom's work won that category but it's still an absolutely stunning film for me today in fact we interviewed Tom a few weeks back um, did you yeah and uh, you know we, we were talking to him about some of the um, some of the things that influenced how he, he how he thinks about his creative work you should have a listen to it it's a fascinating um, discussion about what influences his creative process I would love um, to. I would love to listen to that because um, I wrote him and told him how much I liked your fairy. Yeah. Um, and and he did it, I believe, on iClone. Yes. Um, it. He told me that it took him a year to make. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because um, there are, there is a fair amount of machinima that is done in, not just game environments like World of Warcraft or. Yeah. Um, um, red versus blue, which were which is where machinima machinima got started. Um, so iClone and I think um, uh, let's Cra see, Crazy Movie Tool. Storm, Movie yeah. Storm, yeah, that's right. um, those are ones in which there is no multiplayer element in it, and you craft the entire thing yourself through um, uh, materials that they give you. Yeah. Right, or that you can buy, and you set it in motion. And what machinima really is is um, real-time animation. In other words, it's, it's different from Blender, where you where you imitate motion. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, what I like about machinima is that you can set things in motion, and just like a real camera, um, or you you take a moving picture of it. So. Um, about this experimentality and uh, avant-garde, when I made this documentary, I too was at a standstill when it came to using a term. Um, and I suppose I resist labels um, and categories a bit because there's so much overlap. Mm -hmm. um, in my own work, um, I feel I have an experimental element, but I still value narrative yes. um yes. i still value that and uh, while it's very tempting to do something uh that is like well even dear fairy for instance has a narrative to it it does and mm -hmm. when tom gentle i mean i haven't i don't recall the first one very well dear fairy is the one that i that i commented on um, it's essentially about this little mechanical drummer, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who has found himself in this world that um, is very dark, mm. and um, it's it's a mixed up narrative. It's the dream. I think I, I I really appreciate the kind of montage that creates a kind of a dreamlike quality to it. Um, it's a subtext in many ways, I think. It's a uh, subtext. And uh, to go back to Stolen Child, for instance, William Butler Yeats' poem, it's not really a narrative. It's, it's, um, it's uh -huh. spoken by the fairies to the child they're going to 
steal. It's mm. very dark. And um, come away, O human child, to the mm. waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's too full of weeping than you can understand. Um, the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Um, it suggests that the child will be taken to a kind of paradise, and yet there's something always dark about the fairy. This is what I have been researching now for the past four years, is um, the concept of the fairy, which is not Tinkerbell, you know? Mm -hmm. The fairies, people are still scared of the fairies. Um, and when I found Claudia 333's spirit, which was, she is a master builder and mesh designer. Mm -hmm. And she has made these fairies frightening. Um, they're both beautiful and frightening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where I set Stolen Child. So in a way... Um, and I sung it as well. Yes. Um, uh, sorry, Michaela. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I know everybody likes the. Um, I know. I'm just so impressed with the with the way that you mix narrative with the storytelling and the and and use the um, the camera work on the sim. You know, with the sim to right. evoke just, the the context. Really, I think it's the right. I mean, I'm not sure that it's really narrative so much as its statement. Um, you know, some of it is just not not storytelling. Um, for instance, Deadline is it's kind of storytelling, but it's um, it's it's I hate this word experimental. It's montage in that the the character has this project that she's doing and she is totally neglecting her academic work. That sound familiar, and, <laughs> and so the things that she does is uh, she 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 goes to these different sims and uh, she brings things out of the water and uh, she chops wood and she carries an umbrella that has puppies falling from it and then she thinks she's done with it and then she realizes that she has to teach her old English class and she, so she runs back through all these fantastic areas and is that a narrative? Um, it's my only funny piece. That it's a dreamscape, isn't it? Really? It's a it's dreamscape. Like... It's, it's, it's about escaping. Yeah. <laughs> it's about doing something other than teaching. Um, yeah. And, and it, yeah. I mean, you're clear, I mean, clearly what you're, you're, you're doing there, the visuals are so tied up that, you know, what Second Life is capable of doing for you is so tied up with how you then adapt the 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 way that you perform the work um that i you know without without each it isn't you don't get the same product do you really it's 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 the um i suppose what do we what do we call this we call this the the, the diegetic nature of the environment i, I guess um, well diegesis is associated with chronology with with storytelling Yes. yes, and so what I like is the non-diegetic in a way. Yeah, but um, I meant the I meant the aesthetic, the aesthetic side of it, the way the it looks and moves. Side of it. Yes, yeah. Well, as a as a as a as a person basically who grew up with an artist mother, um, I learned composition and drawing, and um, I drew as a child obsessively, and. I'm in some ways 
sad that I've had to give that up. Uh, whenever you enter a profession, uh, yeah. you always have to give something up. And what I found in Second Life was a return to some of the things that I was so into mm-hmm. as as a child. Writing, I still I still write creatively, um, but I could combine these things. Um, the visual, as I've already said that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have, but uh, I mean, it's just so so obvious when you see the work that so to that's answer, what you do. Yeah. But I wanted to do it in such a way that it's not straightforward chronology. I was I had no interest in replicating traditional filmmaking mm. uh, styles. Mm. Um, Anima Technica does that and does that very expertly. Mm. Um, uh, makes realistic looking uh, uh, films uh, mm. and and it's marvelous. And I do not denigrate that at all. You do what you do. You do what you do that's that's um, effective. Not every film of mine is effective. Um, there have been some duds. <laughs> I was can't heavily, possibly say. <laughs> can't I was heavily criticized, you know. <laughs> well, aren't we all one way or another? Yes. Right. What um, What would you say changed over the over the years for you in terms of the development of your work? I mean, obviously, The Sims got more and more sophisticated. Did that influence how you developed your own work? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I got better at it, too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also watching other films, too, and um, ex- experimenting with it. Um, and I, 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 would, I would think that it was getting better at, at combining voice and... Well, I just found new techniques. Mm. Um, one thing I would tell you not to do is to put a lot of writing and subtitles in something. Uh, for instance, there are subtitles in the Wolf and Ed Watcher because it's all narrated in Old English. And someone said, why not do it again and leave the subtitles out? So I did. And but so what you same. do is that you cut off, you cut your audience off in a way. Yeah. But the subtitles distract, and they even distract in an um, lover's confession of it. Um, well, I have to say, when I was, you know, obviously it's not something I'm personally familiar with. So when I was watching it for the first time, I, I found that I, I started to hear the words that you were saying. And then couldn't translate them. So I had no choice but to read what the words were. And then the minute I did that, I lost what was going on with the film. But I, but I needed all three. I needed to connect all three. And I found that the second time that I watched it, I was a, I was better able to connect all three things. It's sort of uh, like the sixth sense. You have to watch it again. You have to watch it again, I think, to, to, <laughs> to appreciate it. But it's, but it's the spoken word that conveys the story that the images portray and you need those two things but you also need the translation to, to actually follow what's happening it's a little bit like watching a foreign language film that you don't speak the language of <laughs> right right I guess I'm used to watching um, foreign language films and reading the subtitles um, so I didn't think it was a problem at the time um, I, don't, but, I don't think it is a problem really. I think it's, it's it's part of the experience the fact that you know you are not the only one that's going to have to do that, though, because nobody understands its language as such. 
unless you're an expert in it. Maybe like 15 you. people. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're, a, rare, those you're maybe. a rare animal in this, uh, in this uh, old English language. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is out of those actually 30 or 50 or 100 people, how many are going to be actually watching the machinima? So well, um, it cuts it down. One would assume all, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> after, after Confessio Amantes, they made a couple of films. Um, I think I made, well, I made a tribute to, um, to Scott Rolfe for his birthday. And I made a tribute to a, a friend who had died. Uh -huh. And uh, those were the only two that, I'd made after that. And one of the problems too was that it was beginning to slow my computer down. And when I got a new computer, it was, I had to download Premiere Pro, um, Photoshop, all these other things. And Premiere Pro has changed. Yeah. Um, Animesh has made Second Life. Um, you, have, you have to have so much memory in order to run it. And it's it's a lot of backbreaking work, backbreaking work, um, for no remuneration except kudos, and I'm very glad for the awards that I won, and and for Ricky Grove's interest in my film and in yours, um, but it was very hard to get my colleagues to understand the value of it. Yeah, as as. Because Second Life and Machinima are very closeted, um, Second Life especially, um, it was hard to entice anybody to join it, you know, Yeah. And, and, and come around and see what you could do with it. It was a learning curve. Oh, my God. Second Life, first of all, uh, is as hard as any game to learn how to do I mean almost in some ways harder because uh, um, you have to navigate all these different environments um, and there's no there's no goal in it like in a game you don't get points for reaching this level or that level um, and and then machinima that was a year in the making learning how to do that mm -hmm. I made such awful films when I started out. <laughs> so, you, so you've no plans to go back then? You've completely fallen out with it as a creative medium, is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Uh, for one thing, I, I just can't get Premiere Pro to work. And um, for another, I have to work on academic materials. Yeah. yeah. Um, so life's taken over. Life has taken over. And as I said before, I need to move. Um, well, I need to get out of this chair. Um, if I'm going to be healthy, if I'm going to exercise, if I'm going for a walk, if I'm going to garden, if I'm going to um, exercise, um, if I'm going to take yoga classes, I don't have time for this. So because you've, you've just busted the myth that, uh, you know, machinima is a, is a no no cost created platform. There. No cost. It is a cost created platform if you can sell yourself the way JJ has done, uh, the way Pookie Amsterdam has done. Um, I introduced my sister who works um, for um, the San Gabriel Valley Mosquito and Vector uh, Association, um, helping 
uh, students understand the dangers of, um, of especially the tiger mosquito um, and, and other vectors of disease. Mm -hmm. uh, that's her job. I introduced her to Pookie Amsterdam, who has made a number of films that she takes and um, goes around to different schools and shows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and these children are absolutely fascinated. At Pookie Amsterdam makes everything. She makes all her props. She makes the animations. She's got people to do it. She has an industry. Mm -hmm. um, and she charges appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's not as though Machinima is a... Um, <laughs> game yeah. is um it's just that if if you're doing an art machinima like me uh you have got to get used to the idea that you won't make money on this that this is a labor of love uh that this is you might not even have the kind of viewership uh that say Phelan Fairchild had when she came out with her absolutely hilarious Machinima. She's one of the first that I saw that I laughed and laughed over. Um, very early. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? I think that's probably... It's like, it's like writing fiction. You have to sell yourself. Absolutely. You, you certainly do. And I think the, you know, the new Machinima creators, uh, you know, the, the guys that uh, are on the uh, various social media platforms are the ones that have got the, the marketing side of it nailed. And the um, you know the folks that um, we seem to feature on on this podcast, by and large, are, are are creators and are passionate about the creative work that they produce or have produced over the years. Um, and a lot of them are very tech savvy too. Absolutely, absolutely. And and are already um, um, programmers. For instance, um, one of the machinima photographers that I really admire is Friday Siamendes, who also made animations for me uh, that I used in um, The Lover's Confession. But uh, he's made very few films. He's developed into uh, from from realistic films into quite, uh, you know, abstract uh, mm -hmm. films. Um, and and what was I going to say? I don't remember. I was, that shows a real development. And, um, but I think, you know, that what, what we're, what we're illustrating here, particularly with this particular episode of the podcast, is that, you know, that it's perfectly possible to take, a, a, you know, take classic works, if you like, and, and adapt them and bring them up to date using, uh, engines such as Second Life or other, other engines and retell the, the, um, the tale, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, new media formats really. And, and you know, the, it's, the, it's the quality of how you produce the work, what, what you know, your, your narrative quality comes through so strongly in the, in the work that we've reviewed here today. Um, and, you know the way that you've put the visuals together, and the and the the use of the Sims as um, as um, sets, if you like, for for where you're filming, are all part and parcel of the of the creative process that you you've gone through, and and you really have created some stunning works, and I'm sure our listeners will be equally as as thrilled to um, sit and watch some of them as as I have been in in preparing to talk to you today, Sarah. Um, I think. 
I think in the interest of time, we've been going a while. <laughs> I think we should wrap it there. Um, we'll right. put all of the links um, that we've talked about today in the show notes. And um, just remains for me to say thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. I'm really, really very, very honored and flattered. And um, thank you for liking my films. Um, oh, no, I've enjoyed problem. talking to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. Bye.